0: Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the Jam Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office. At JewishAwareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, a couple of weeks ago we started in Hebrews chapter 5, the first four verses, which are again um, summarized right after my opening paragraph my opening comment but verses 5 through 10 actually uh, 5 through 9 show us that Jesus met the qualifications of a high priest as laid out in the first four verses of this chapter when we looked at it last or two weeks ago uh, those six different qualifications that we find here taken from men appointed for men occupied with things pertaining to God bears gently with the ignorant and the erring offers gifts and sacrifices for sins and must be called of God uh, we looked at that in relation primarily not not two weeks ago to how Jesus fulfills these but how we need we meet as believers we're we're priests we're we're told in peter uh as priests how we also meet these requirements and so we compared the requirements there to our life as well. Well, we get when we get into verse, uh, five, verses five through nine, now it is specifically talking about Jesus. And as the high priest, he also meets these qualifications. Verse 10, which we're gonna just look at briefly, uh, hopefully at the end of the study tonight, uh, talks about Melchizedek. We will get into Melchizedek in more detail in the days ahead because although these six things are qualifications that are characteristics, or I guess there's a lot of terminology you could use, uh, is necessary for the high priest, for a priest, and for Jesus, uh, it's not all the qualifications for the priest from the tribe of Levi. Because to be the priest from the priest, or the high priest back in biblical days, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. Well, Jesus would be disqualified in that regard because what tribe was Jesus from? Judah, Judah, yeah. He was from the the, the tribe that would produce the kings but not the priests. So he's not, and that's what chapter 7 especially will get into in a lot of detail, that Jesus is not a priest after the order of Aaron or the Levites, a high priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we're not going to look at it in detail at all tonight, even though I have it down in verse 10. But we will look at it in future, because this Melchizedek guy is a very, very... Um, not a lot about him. And he's a, he's a very controversial figure in the, in the, in the religious world. Uh, the Jewish writings on Melchizedek are off the chart, off the wall. Uh, the Mormon understanding of the priesthood after Melchizedek is just plain wrong. Uh, and then you get to the Bible-believing world, uh, and, and some some think, well, Melchizedek uh, was a pre-incarnate Jesus. And so when uh, Abram uh, met Melchizedek, that was actually Jesus. But there are others think, no, he wasn't a pre-incarnate Jesus. He was a priest-king, Because he was a king as well, Melchizedek. Um, So which is correct? Well, we're not going to answer that question tonight. Uh, But uh, we will get to it in the future. That's what verse 10, uh, even though it it introduces us to that. So we're going to look at tonight, Jesus meeting all of these different requirements, verses 5 through 9. And it starts out in verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself, To be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Well, this, I believe, would fit under the category of must be called of God. Uh, It was not Jesus who glorified himself, made himself the high priest. No, he was called into that position by. God And what we have quoted here, and we'll we'll look at that down in verses 6 and 7, it's down here. He, 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 we have a quote from Psalm 2, uh, where it says, But he that said unto him, and that's God, what we would, the one we would know as God the Father, But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And so it's the Father, in other words, who glorified Jesus to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, The writer of Hebrews uses two prophecies from the Tanakh, from the Jewish Bible, from the Hebrew Scripture, uh, to establish God's choosing of Jesus. The first one is from Psalm 2, as I've already said. Here's what verses 6 and 7 say in Psalm 2. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, "Thou art my this, my son. This day have I begotten thee." The second psalm, and earlier in the in the verse or early in the chapter, it, it speaks about uh, the, the God. Um, it's just got the nations in, in, in derision, uh, and they have, they are just have all kinds of animosity against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, anointed literally means Mashiach or Christ. So the, the nations are angry with God and his Messiah. Now, the Messiah is spoken of later on in the chapter, verses 6 and 7, God. But notice what it says in the end of verse 7. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, it, it is very interesting how this is interpreted when we come to the New Testament. Look look what Acts chapter 13 says. And the context of Acts 13, I, I should have probably put where it started, but uh, before it and afterwards, the entire context there is speaking of resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. So, 33 of Acts 13 God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. Resurrection. Okay, He has raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So, Scripture interprets Scripture. So when you're reading Psalm 2 without the advantage of the later scripture, the New Covenant, the the New Testament, the book of Acts in particular, I don't think you would uh, at all pick up what the intended meaning was back in verse 7. What's the intended meaning? Resurrection. Look again what it says. He had raised up Jesus again, and I have it in bold here. He had raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And so the resurrection phrase has to be the last phrase of verse 7. This day have I begotten thee. This day I have resurrected thee. I have brought thee back to life. So in Psalm 2, the begotten son, or I have begotten thee, uh, is is a, a phrase of resurrection. And it's interesting when you look at 33 we're not going there because there are a number of quotes that you'll find there from the Jewish scriptures that perhaps if you were looking only at the Jewish scripture and you didn't again have the advantage of Acts 13 you wouldn't catch it uh, for example uh, in Acts 13 he talks about uh, Jesus be the sure mercies of David. Now, the sure mercies of David comes from Isaiah 55. And it's speaking of Jesus, but it is specifically speaking of his resurrection. And and I I can open and and read Isaiah right around it for you. You probably wouldn't pick it up uh, just by reading it in in Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, And it would start, um, verse 3, incline your ear, come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Well, you know, you read that just from the Old Testament, you might say, well, the sure mercies of David, well, Isaiah, roughly 300 years after the life of David, the time of David, David's been dead, you know, he was a king around, thousand BC and Isaiah was around roughly 700 uh, BC and so we can have the sure mercies of David so it's having something to do with David when you go to Acts 13 and you don't have to go there now you can do it later you find out that the sure mercies of David is not speaking of David it's speaking of Jesus speaking of the Messiah and it's speaking specifically of the resurrection of Jesus. So when you go back to Isaiah 55, and and you don't have to turn there, verse 3, the command is, incline your ear, come unto me, the Lord, come unto God, Hear, and your soul shall live, spiritually be made alive, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So God will make an everlasting covenant with those who turn to him. Their soul will live, and they'll have that eternal covenant that one day they will be resurrected just as Jesus was resurrected. You read in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Jesus is referred to as the first fruits of the resurrection. First fruits, he's he's the down payment. He's the promise that there's there's a greater resurrection coming. So it gives insight into what it's saying. Well, the same thing in Psalm 2. It's talking about the resurrection of the Lord. And so here, in in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 5, Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, the father who said unto him, you're my son and you're going to be resurrected. I'm just paraphrasing now. This day have I begotten thee. Now, look at Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now he would be not Paul, obviously. It would probably go back to God, the gospel of God. But God promised, through his prophets, um, the gospel. It's very easy to go back to the Old Testament, the earlier scriptures, and find the gospel. Actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know, if you're going to define the gospel, the best way to define the gospel, which means good news, is the same way God defines the gospel. How does God define the gospel for us in the Word of God? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. That's the good news. He died for our sins. He was buried for our sins. He rose from the grave for our sins. That's the good news. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Now, it's good news, but it doesn't do people any good unless they act on it, unless they receive it. Um, but even in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the, the prophets uh, writing and speaking of what would come. Well, saying the same thing here in Romans, that God, through the prophets, had, had spoken about, promised the, the gospel that Jesus, the Messiah, would die, buried, raised from the grave. So, then verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Uh, you read, you read this, these opening f- um, <laughs> verses in Romans, and you could park in almost any one of these phrases for at least a Bible study, uh, a sermon. Um, we're not going to do that. But anyway, not right now anyway, but concerning is Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he was made of the seed of David. I have some comments down here on that. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. There's probably, there's a lot of important doctrines in Christianity. There's no question about that. Um, We can sit here and name some of the more important doctrines in, in Bible-believing Christian world. Uh, the deity of the Messiah, the triunity of God, um, the bodily resurrection that just talking about here, um, the inspiration of Scripture, um, uh, salvation by, gra- by grace through faith alone. So. now it's talking about his resurrection. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so of all the doctrines I hate to say one is more important than another um, because they're all important and, um, but certainly the resurrection of Jesus the bodily, the physical resurrection of Jesus is just foundational to our Christian faith because by that again verse 4 By the resurrection from the dead, God, uh, I'm now backing up to the beginning of verse 4, God declared Jesus the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness. Now, that didn't make him the Son of God. There's a difference between making something and declaring something, right? If you declare something, you're just stating what's real you make something you're you're bringing it into existence jesus wasn't made the son of god jesus has eternally been the son of god so we got to be careful there he's always been the son of god but through the resurrection it was a um uh it was a, it was a proclamation it was a shout out it was uh uh it was god's way of saying this is my son the son of god With power, yes, yeah. Um, And I think that's what we're getting at when it goes back to uh, Psalm 2 even. when um, Here's talking about, in, in Psalm 2, he's the king. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. The king is the son who will be resurrected, and the resurrection shows that he is the son of God and proves it, if you will. So, in a sense, the entire basis for biblical Christianity stands on the resurrection of Jesus. You can read 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we are of all people, it says, most miserable. So you can, you can argue that there's certainly no, more, no, no doctrine any more important than the resurrection of Jesus. It, it, it's the basis in one sense uh, for where biblical Christianity differs from, differs from any other um, religion. And because of the re- resurrection, he was declared, and I, I mentioned this, not made, the son of God, with power. Now, he was made to be the seed of David. There's the difference. Um, Again, looking back at um, verse 3 of Romans 1. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, O Lord, which was made of the seed of David. See, in eternity past, was Jesus human? Was Jesus of the seed of of David? No. But in eternity past, was he the son of God? Yeah, because God, son of God is God eternal so he was not made the son of God he was declared to be the son of God but he was made the seed of David well there are a lot of places but yes <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah because yeah they're really messed up um, so how was he made the seed of David by a miraculous birth implanted in a Daughter of David, Mary, uh, who was wed to another uh, son of David, uh, one through um, David and uh, one through um, David, one through Nathan, uh, but he was made born into this world ultimately to die for the sins of the world. Now declared, the word declared horizo, her, her, and, and so this is I find interesting. Um, it's to mark out or, bo- or a boundary a result now when, when um, oftentimes when we when we talk about or when the Bible talks about and we talk about predestination for that term right that's the same word as declared here Without the pre. Okay? Predestination is, is pro horizo. Declared is horizo. So what it's saying here is, is horizo means think of horizon. Think of out on the horizon. You know, if you look at the sun setting and the sun sets on the horizon, right? and that's the boundary that's the horizon that's the the end where it's going to go down you know from from our vantage point I know I, you know you don't have to tell me the sun comes all of that stuff but on the horizon is what it's saying okay the de- and so that's what he's saying declared um, uh, to be the son of god with power in other words it's decreed it's specified it's ordained that uh, you know That he is the son of God and has always been and he's, in a sense, the the end result, if you will. Again, the only difference between predestination and here the word that is used is declared as the word, the prefix, pro, pre. All that means, predestination is ahead of time. God determined the end result of something on the horizon. That's all it means. Here it just talks about Jesus, uh, that he, he is declared to be the son of God. He's the end of, of, all, of it all. He is the son of God. He's where it all ends, if you will. There's nothing up except him. You follow? So it, it's interesting, I think, anyway. It's the same word other than the prefix that you'll find. Then it's used um, eight times, harizo, in the New Testament. Pro-arizo, by the way, is used, if I remember correctly, six times in the New Testament. Four times it's used of believers. The other two times, one is speaking about the gospel, the other is talking about Jesus. Uh, but harizo is used um, eight times. And we're not going to look at all of these verses. Andrew McLaren makes this statement about the resurrection and all of this, which I found very good. He said, the resurrection... Is God's solemn amen to the tremendous claims which Christ had made? I mean, th- think of some of the claims that tr- Christ had made. I am the bread of life. I am the water even waters. Um, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but him. I mean, you think of all these claims that Jesus made. Um, those are astounding claims. And I think that's partly why, you know, the rabbi said, the Jewish, said, no man speaks like you speak. And I, and I think his he never made a mistake, never stumbled, like I do. Um, and a lot of preachers do, a lot of teachers do. He was perfect in what he said, but I, I think beyond that, it's the claims. No rabbi, in his right mind anyway, would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. No, no rabbi would say, I'm the resurrection the life. I'm the bread of life. And all the other, you, you, we could sit here for a long time and, and think about all the claims Jesus made. Well, the resurrection was God's, as McLaren said, amen. Or exclamation mark on everything that Jesus said. And the resurrection proved that everything that he said was true. He is everything that he claimed to be. So it goes on in this quote, he says, "...the fact of his resurrection indeed would not declare his divinity, uh, but the resurrection of one who has spoken such words does." It's not the fact of the resurrection that declares his divinity, uh, but the resurrection v- verified what he said. Were other people raised from the dead prior to Jesus? Lots of, you know, relatively speaking, lots of people in the Old Testament, and Lazarus, and, and so on. So that's, they're not God, right? You know, so it's not the resurrection itself <coughs> that proves he's deity. What the re- resurrection does, it, it, it says, amen, to everything he taught and and all that we talked about. And this is what he's saying here. Um, but the resurrection one who had spoken such words does. If the crossed and the nameless grave had been the end, what a reducto ad absurdum, disproof of a proposition by showing an absurdity to which it leads which when carried to its logical conclusion. In other words, what that means, if... Jesus would have been crucified, put in a grave, and that's it. Everything he said is just, he's a madman. He's crazy. It's absurd what he was saying. He had to come out of the grave. And then McLaren goes on and says, um, that would have been, uh, and let me put you know, if the cross and the nameless grave had been the end, what a reducto ad absurdum, Uh, that would have been to the claims of Jesus to have ever been with the father and to be doing always the things that pleased him. The resurrection is God's last and loudest proclamation. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. So we cannot diminish in any way the resurrection of Jesus. And and Satan through the ages, he, he, he attacked the resurrection, Satan did, uh, back in the first century, the Gnostics, you know what the Gnostics, you know, Colossians dealt with the Gnostics, it was a, um, Gnostics means knowledge, you know, when you think of a-gnostic, ag Gnostic, it's literally a-gnostic, and a is the Latin prefix that means no, and Gnostic means knowledge. I have no knowledge of God. You, know, you, you I always say you're sitting on the fence. You don't know which side to fall off of. Um, so um, it was just the the the, um, the exclamation point, the point, the amen of God um, that Jesus and what He said is exactly true, and who He is. Um, so the resurrection is so very very important. And so Christ glorified him, not himself, but through his resurrection he was declared, shown, confirmed, verified that he is the Son of God, he is the everlasting life, and, and so on uh, and, and so forth, that God the Father would then make him the, the, the priest. Um, turn, turn the page over. Verse 6. So he's called by God. And then the next verse, verse 6, says this. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is the second passage that's quoted. He says in another place. What was the first place that was quoted? Psalm 2. Where's this other place? Without reading the notes. <laughs> you could read the notes, okay. What's the other place? Thou art the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. So these are the two passages that is appealed to by the writer of Hebrews for Jesus. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the second prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures, Psalm 110 verse 4, it's used there to show that God has called the Messiah and made him a priest. Now, the verse itself, verse 4 of Psalm 110 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, Melchizedek is this, and we're not going to look at this tonight. uh, He is this mysterious individual. He's only mentioned in Psalm 110 and back in Genesis 14. You don't find him until you come to Hebrews, you don't find Melchizedek anywhere else. Um, and and eventually, as we will get there, I'll bring in some different quotes that you can hear what the Jewish world says of Melchizedek, and you know it's it's just um, it's it's amazing what a lot of people think of Melchizedek. Um, so he quotes Psalm 110. Uh, the Lord has sworn, will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And, and pr- turn in your, go back to Psalm 110 for a moment. Just to show you in its context, you may be aware of it. The first three verses. Verse 1 of the 110th Psalm. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now right above that verse in your Bible, I am almost certain it says a Psalm of David. So here's the question. Who wrote this Psalm? Thank you. Okay. Shouldn't be that difficult. Um, It's a Psalm of David. Now what office did David hold in Israel? king. He was the highest human authority. Nobody was over David, humanly speaking. Israel was a theocracy. God was over the king of Israel, but no other man was over the king. King David was writing this psalm, and King David says, The Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Adon, my my Lord, my master, who is David's master? Lord? Well, Jesus, yes. Okay. Yes, you're correct. But think of it in, in a in a in an old testament setting. God. Theocracy. The, God was over David. God was the ruler of Israel. God appointed the king. God was over him. Now, yes, it's Jesus. I I don't, yes, that definitely is because Jesus uses the New Testament. But you're cheating because you have the New Testament. Okay? The Jewish people back then didn't, let alone the Jewish people today don't. Uh, They do, but they don't, if you know what I mean. They don't accept it, use it. So the Lord, Jehovah, said unto my God. Now, that alone has thrown a lot of people in, uh, in in a whirlwind. Because you have God speaking to God. We are monotheistic. The Bible is monotheistic. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, And yet you have God speaking to God. So how do we reckon? This is, we don't believe in two gods. We believe in one God. We believe in monotheism. Very clearly, there's two gods here. God speaking to David's God, who is the God of Israel, how do we reconcile this verse with the, te- with the understanding and the biblical teaching of monotheism, one God? One, only one possible way. That God is a plurality in unity. And, and it's important to use the word plurality, not triunity here. So, uh, why? What is, and I'll get to you in a second, Tom. Um, why? What does tri-unity communicate? Three. How many do you have here? Two. So if you're going to strictly go by how many gods are here, it's a bi-unity, not a tri-unity. Now, in studying the entire word of God, we find out that there are three persons in the Godhead, so thus the tri-unity. So when you have a plurality in unity, a plurality is more than one. Two, three, a dozen, hundred, whatever the case might be. And that plurality ends up being a triunity. S- Tom, go ahead. You had a point uh, or a question? Bible, uh, the, first, where says, the, Lord said, the first Lord is in all caps, and the second one is uh, just the L that's And that's because when you have all caps, it's the underlying Hebrew word Jehovah. And my guess is everybody's Bible, English Bible here, has it in caps. They should. The, when, it, when it's capital L, small o-r-d, it's always the word Adon or Adonai, meaning master, Lord. And that's how you can tell. Um, so it's Jehovah said unto my master, my Lord. But again, when David is speaking, Psalm of David, the king, there's only one master that he has, which is God. Well, it go, well and we're not going to digress to do it. It would take way too long. It, it actually goes back to the first verse of Genesis. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it starts out, Bereshit, bara, Elohim. And Bereshit, beginning. Barah is the verb created, and it's singular. Elohim is plural for God. And you'll find Elohim when it talks about false gods translated god's plural cuz it is a plural word well in grammar the ver- the, the verb uh, 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 the subject and the verb should agree they is going to church right they may go to church but that's not yeah the, my english teacher would slap me across the across the back of the hand and you know how that goes no they are they plural are plural Okay, let's try this. He are going to church. Does that work? No. He is. They have to agree. Same thing in Genesis one one, And, and um, I've shared this illustration before. I, I, You know, when I was in studying for my master's in Judaic studies, some of you have heard this illustration, right? I know some. Of, Cheryl's heard it. A thousand times, Cheryl. Um, you want to share it with them? No. No. Um, As part of of this particular class, the rabbi was an orthodox rabbi. The professor was an orthodox rabbi, and he was a linguist. His uh, doctorate was in languages. He knew um, all the languages that had any bearing whatsoever on the biblical text, certainly Hebrew, Aramaic, Ugaritic. uh, He was a linguist. And so we did the first... Four chapters of Genesis, verse by verse. And uh, some of you haven't heard this, I guess, right? Okay. The rest have forgot about it, so you'll h- you're hearing it again. So we started out in verse 1, chapter 1, same way at w- Bereshit, he said, Bara Elohim, he stopped. And he said, what this demands, linguistically, grammatically, is that God is a plurality in unity. And I'm just sitting there back blown away. There were 14, uh, 14 students in the class, were all Jewish. Uh, I was the, to my knowledge, I was the only believer in Jesus. Uh, and there was one other uh, and one other young man, I, th- this was I was young back then. You know, I was under 40 back then. I may not be, you know, literally. Um, he was a Lubavitch Jewish man. And he believed in the Bible being the word of God. I believed in the Bible being the word of God. None of the other people in the class did, including the professor, interestingly enough, who was an Orthodox rabbi. (coughs) And and this was like putting a red cape in front of a bull. He went ballistic. He just, he started yelling uh, at the professor and uh, half was in Hebrew and half was in English and I could understand the Hebrew I couldn't understand the English no no it's the other way around um, and, and, he said, and at one point in English the, the Lubavitch young man said don't you realize that you are giving ammunition to our enemies for the Trinity And I'm, I, he didn't know the Lubavitch that I was a believer Jesus, uh, the professor did. By the way, I had told the professor, professor, right up front, I thought he should know. Um, the Lubavitch young man na- and uh, and the professor said, "I'm not giving ammunition for anything to anybody. I am just telling you what the grammar demands us to believe. The whole, the end of this, the whole." 15 minutes of going back and forth. Professor was really getting perturbed uh, because it was taking up valuable class time and 13 others of us were just sitting there listening to this um, diatribe go on. Anyway, at the end of it, the uh, Lubavitch young man, when I say young, late 20s, maybe probably is my guess, maybe early 30s, uh, which was about my age at the time. We weren't even married. No, She was a she was a, a twinkle in my eye. She was, uh, you know, the, the, the hope of my heart. But anyway, <laughs> still future. Um, uh, where was Oh, finally at the end, the, the Lubavitch young man, he never would have said this to me if I was, as a believer, doing that. He said, okay, okay. He says, you're right. Grammatically it demands that we understand that God is a plurality in unity. But then he said, facetiously, he said, but I only see two, I don't see three. Now, he, he was being facetious. He admitted to the plurality, but he didn't want to, to admit to a triunity. But, but in the grammar in Genesis 1.1, you don't see two, you don't see three, you don't see six, you don't see a hundred. You just see a plurality in unity with the uh, subject being plural and the verb being singular. Um, so it starts right back with Moses I guess you could say because Moses wrote um, Genesis but right in the first verse of the Bible we're introduced to God being a plurality in unity so, and it's picked up from there throughout Genesis um, and, and many many other places um, I didn't mean to get that much of a digression so anyway look at verse 2 uh, well, the end of verse 1: Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, now think of this, just in the context. Thou art, the Lord said on oh, my Lord, Sit thou at my right, right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. When will, and speaking of Jesus, yes, but who is God? When will Jesus sit on the right hand of the Father until the enemies of God are destroyed? When will that take place? At his ascension. That's what Hebrews really is dealing with now. Where is Jesus now? Right hand of the Father. What's he waiting for? That's what I ask every day. What are you waiting for? (laughs) You know. The rapture. Well, he's he's there waiting. Ultimately, God's going to destroy the enemies of him. Tribulation period. And then he's going to be sent back. Verse 2. The Lord, is, and so the whole context of um, Psalm 110 is speaking of, of the ascension and Jesus being in heaven, and the Lord shall send the rod of your strength. So Jehovah will send the rod of whose strength? We're never going to get through this Hebrews, but anyway, the Lord is going to send the rod of whose strength out of Zion? Messiah, Messiah David's Lord, David's God. Who will, when, when when the judgments of Revelation are poured out in the tribulation period, who is opening those judgments? Jesus. The seal judgments, which open the trumpet judgments, which open the old judgments. So the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. That's Ultimately, that's going to happen. Uh, then verse 3. Thy shall be willing in the day of thy power thy people is whom jewish people when will they be willing to accept jesus yeah when they shall look upon him whom they have pierced when they say blessed is he that comes in the name of the lord at what period of time end of the tribulation when jesus comes back in power Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. That's the tribulation period. And that's when he returns. Um, then it says, In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, thou is the dew of thy youth. And this is just poetic language uh, that talks about the, the majesty, the holiness, the beauty of Jesus. Um, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the, from the very beginning, you were holy and, and and such, and you have the dew of your youth so in the first three verses, he's talking about the Messiah, who is very God himself, who is sitting on the right hand of God, waiting to come back and, 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 um, and subdue the enemies of God, and the Jewish people, when he does come back. They will be willing at that point, and they will receive him as their king, as their Messiah. And then in verse 4, we have the statement. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You don't find Melchizedek mentioned since the early part of Genesis. And all of a sudden, you're introduced to God has sworn Jehovah and said, you... Messiah, the anointed one, who's very good, you're a priest as well. After the order of Melchizedek. Oh, the rest of the chapter is so good. Look at, we only got three more verses, so. Look at verse 5. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Now what Lord is that? Tom mentioned it earlier. What Hebrew word is that? Adon, Adon, Adonai. So the Lord, or, or, or Master. So the Lord at thy right hand. So whose right hand would this be that this Lord is at, obviously? Jehovah. So let's put it this way. The Messiah, sitting at your right hand, God, shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. In John 15, for example, it says that it's Jesus. God has given to Jesus the right of judgment. And when the wrath of God is poured out at the beginning of the tribulation period, the beginning seal um, judgments, who is opening those seals again? Jesus. So verse 5, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God Ultimately, will strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. Again, the day of his wrath being the tribulation period. He shall judge among the heathen, he shall fill the places with dead bodies. Stop there for a second. I don't want to look at the last phrase. Now, he shall judge among the heathen, he shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He is. The one sitting at the right hand, the Lord, the Messiah. Uh, He's going to judge the heathen. Who are the heathen? The Gentile nations and peoples of the world. He's going to fill the places with dead bodies. Have you ever read Revelation? How many dead bodies are there? Lots of them. That's what this is saying. Okay? Okay? And he shall wound the singular head over many countries. shouldn't be heads, it's singular. Who in the tribulation period is the head of many countries? What does Jesus do at the end of the tribulation period? He comes back and he destroys the antichrist and the antichrist is cast into or hell not the lake of fire yet he's temporarily in hell lake of fire is not until the great white throne judgment because the antichrist is um, uh, released not the antichrist the satan is released at the end of the uh, tribulation period Um, <clears throat> the Antichrist is indwelt by Satan, but it's temporarily in, in 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 what we would call. See, this is where language gets confusing. Hell, I, I don't want you to go out here saying I'm denying hell. Okay, <laughs> so hell is not the final abode of the unsaved. Hell is presently the abode of the unsaved. The ultimate. Dwelling place, abode of the unsaved, is the lake of fire. Now, in the in the Christian world, it's very common, and well as as well as the secular world, whether they believe in in hell or not, but to 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 uh, get the terms a, a, as synonymous. Well, the lake of fire is hell, and the end result is, if you don't get saved, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Well, not really. You're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Hell is the temporary place. It's no fun in hell. Um, you know, it's still, you know, but the lake of fire, you know. So, anyway, I don't want to, you know. Mark, um, is that word head the same Hebrew word, or do you know? Rush. when uh, God in the garden says, how oh, he shall bruise your head? <coughs> Yes. His own, his own. Yes, then that's speaking of Satan, yes. And I think the head here, which is Rosh, isn't it? You got your Hebrew Bible there, Dan? That's all right, it's Rosh. Um, so, Bob, what are you going to say? plural, it says head. So is mine. But it's singular in the Hebrew. And it should be, he shall. He, uh, um, he sh- and, he- and he shall wound the head over many countries. And it's very, I- I'm convinced, it's speaking of the Antichrist. I mean, look at the context. The whole context is second coming. And he's the, yes, are all the kings going to be destroyed too? But I think it's the head of all these countries, the Antichrist, who will, will have that. Uh, and he shall drink of the brook of the way, therefore he shall lift up the head. There it is. Singular in the English. All of that to say, right now, verse 4, as Jesus is waiting at the right hand of the Father, the Messiah, he is a priest after the order of... Yes? Sure. One, two, one. Exactly, thank you. So, um, as the, When you think of Rosh, what do you think of in the way of a Jewish holiday? Rosh Hashanah. The new year. Literally, ha is the, Shana, year. Rosh is head. 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 The head of the year. That's why it's called the new year, because the beginning, It's not the word for beginning, it's the head, the beginning. It's rush here. I don't know why they translated it plural. Um, I know the King James only people listening in are really upset with me right now. Um, so... Anyway... No. Have a cup of coffee, Bob. Um, No. Um, But in the middle of this entire psalm, it's not a large psalm, it's only seven verses. We have verse four, and we have Jesus who's ascended, sitting on the right hand of the Father, waiting for the enemies of God to be put down. (coughs) So we have the advantage that David didn't have have to knowing what? When did Jesus ascend to sit on the right hand of the Father? 2,000 years ago, roughly, okay? When is he coming back to subdue the kings and become the king over all the world? End of the tribulation period. Those are the two um, bookends of this passage. And in the midst of this, God says, you are a priest after you ordered Melchizedek. And and that's what Hebrews is really uh, largely about. Jesus is in heaven today, interceding for us. Thank God for that. So go back to your notes. (coughs) I really digressed a lot. Um, So the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is not based on lineage. Lineage as was the Levitical priesthood, but on the choosing of God. So he must be called of God. The priesthood is eternal in its duration in, contradist- in contradistinction to the Levitical priesthood. Now we will see that as we get to chapter 7. In the Levitical priesthood, how long did you last as the high priest? Yeah, 12 years, 15, 6, 10, whatever, till you die. The Levitical, then, then you're no longer the high priest. They they bring in another guy. You know, Buzz dies tomorrow. We bring in Bob to be to replace him. Oh man, are we in trouble? Um, they're not Levites. We can't do that. So, but you get the point. Okay. Pardon? Well, biblically speaking, no. But. Catholicism badly mimics the, bio, but the Old Testament system. And I say badly because it's not biblical whatsoever. Uh, but the Pope, you could say, is the high priest of Catholicism. Um, and then you've got the, um, the, the, the sons of Aaron, the um, Kohanim that you could say is the cardinals in Catholicism. And then you've got the worker bee priests, the Levites, the rest of the tribe. That's me, by the way. I'm a worker bee. Well, uh, put them in with cardinals. Um, and then you've got all the rest of the priests of Catholicism who are just, you know, hoping that they can become whatever. It's no, it's it, it, it's a poor imitation. Of, of the biblical reality, but you know, who is the great counterfeiter, or who is the counterfeiter? I, I don't know if we should call him great. Satan, and so I so I think there's a mimicking there, but is is it is it, is it a good no? It's, it's so far off, so wrong, so unbiblical, um, you know. So. so that's what that's what Certainly, yeah. Yeah, certainly the, um, that religion and uh, could be lined up, meaning Roman Catholicism, to be the re- initially the religion of the Antichrist. Uh, and there are those many b- people who believe that Revelation 17, that talks about mystery Babylon and this woman clo- and so on, is actually the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and there is good arguments for that viewpoint. Um, But ultimately, the Antichrist is going to throw off all religions. And that will be at the middle of the tribulation period when he goes into the temple, declares himself God, because he alone wants worship. Which goes right back to the beginning when he was jealous of God. Okay, so he's appointed for men also. Uh, the purpose of a priest was to represent men before God. The calling of the Messiah as a priest shows the purpose of his ministry was to serve people. When we th- think of the Gospel of Mark. Um, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So the the priest, the, the, the one of the... the attributes, qualifications uh, of a priest was he was to serve man. He was appointed to be a servant of man. Did Jesus serve man? What does this verse say? He came not to be served, ministered unto, but to serve or to minister and ultimately give his life a ransom for a whole bunch of people is what he's saying he met this qualification as well. Then verse 7 who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Now there's a lot here that, that needs to be unpacked. Um Because there can be a lot of misunderstanding here. And I am very tempted to hold off on this um, because we're already about 20 after 8. And and when you look at verse 7, he offered up prayers, supplications with strong crying and tears uh, unto him that was able to save him from death. You know, people, you can give the impression, well, God, I, I'm fearful. God, um, I don't want to go through this. And God, you need to deliver me from this. And uh, as he cried out to God in tears, save me from this. Uh, and you can get the wrong impression. And not only that, uh, he was heard in that he feared. Yeah, you know, well, he feared dying. At that t- you know. So I, I don't want to. And then when we go down to verse uh, eight. And look over in the next page, and which would be page. This is another one that can be very confusing. Though he were son, yet, he learned, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So he learned obedience. And this can be a confusing thing as well. Because Jesus, it doesn't say he, he learned. Though he, were, though he were son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So it seems to say that the only way Jesus learned about obedience is through suffering, right? That's not correct. That's why we're going to wait. And you can read all this notes and you'll know anyway before we pick it up next week. But I just don't want to get into something that could take a good amount of time uh, when we're so late tonight. Um, So... He was the son of God. He knew every. God is omniscient, right? Does he have to learn anything? No, he knew everything. You know, as Isaiah forty says, uh, "Who hath taught him and given him counsel?" Speaking of God, does anybody counsel God? Does anybody impart knowledge to God? No. Why? He knows everything. So did he learn need to learn about suffering by uh, did, he, did he need to learn about obedience by through suffering? No, he knew everything about obedience. He's omniscient. So it's not learning in the sense of going to class, whether it's a Bible class, whether it's a math class, whatever class and you're learning something that let's say you didn't understand before. That's not what this means. Jesus knew everything about obedience. He knew he knew more about obedience than we will ever know about obedience. So I, I don't. So when you look at verse seven and verse eight, um, let alone verse nine, where he being made perfect, was Jesus made perfect? Uh, okay, we'll pick this up next week. Um, so pardon, <laughs> he was never made perfect. He was always perfect. Uh, so anyway. Uh, that does you know you get into some of these verses and phrases that when you read it on the surface you can have a big confusion so we don't I don't want to rush through it in ten minutes, which will probably take us all next lesson okay so any any questions or thoughts other than what are we eating for dessert oh uh, um, Ken. Well Melchizedek is a priest and when we ultimately look at it we'll look back at Genesis part. he's also a king yes yes well uh, there it's mentioned not his kingship but his priesthood um, because he's, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek after you know Aaron was a priest after the order of the Levites you could say or anybody after that as well. Who is Levite? Levite. Part, yeah. So, oh, from the Melchizedekian priesthood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think it's talking about there his kingship, Melchizedek's. I think it's solely talking about his um, priest priestly function. So, but, we, but we'll pick it up next week, and then we'll ultimately we'll look at Melchizedek. Um, I know in chapter 7 we will. so, And we'll try to understand a little bit, so probably in the beginning of chapter 7, uh, which is where it, it talks about Melchizedek, and, um, although it talks about Melchizedek, obviously, at this point. But in Hebrews chapter 7, it starts out, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him? Well, that's where we're going to try to understand a little bit more about Melchizedek. It tells us a lot about him. You know, it goes on in chapter 7 telling us about him, but it tells he's the king of Salem. He's a priest of the Most High God. Who's the Most High God? Jehovah, the God of Israel. Uh, and he met Abraham and he blessed him. So he's a king of Salem, and Salem is the forerunner of what city? Jerusalem. Je- Jerusalem. Salem. So, so, same city. He was the king of Salem. Um, anyway, he's an interesting character. We will look at him. Uh, oh, hopefully, maybe before the rapture happens, but I can't guarantee that. Uh, but it won't be next week. So, okay, let's close with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and love. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website... JewishAwareness.org Email us at, at org, or call us at 919-275-4477 Shalom